Hey nerds, I'm Will Wheaton and you are hearing me talk. In the 70s and 80s, I was a huge, huge fan of paranormal and occult stories. I knew they weren't true. I just figured they were amazing stories. I loved mythology. I loved religious mythology. Uh, I had been kind of, well, forced into a very regressive parochial school for my elementary education. And I figured out very quickly that everything they told us was a story. And I liked stories. I thought stories were cool. So when Time Life came out with a series of books called Mysteries of the Unknown in the 80s, I was beside myself. They advertised them on television and you could send, you know, a check or whatever, you know, ask your parents. And then you would get, you know, these would be sent to you on a subscription basis until you had the full set. My parents would not let me get the subscription to get the full set, but they did sell these at the grocery store. Now, I don't know if this still happens and it's just an interesting piece of information from when I was a kid that is a way the world is different now than it was. I don't know if this still happens and I don't know if anyone else that's around my age uh, in Generation X or older remembers this, but you used to be able to go into the grocery store in like, this was, this happened a lot in the 70s. I remember it less in the 80s. And uh, you could buy a thing that was part of a set that was slowly released over maybe a year or so. So every month there would be a new, uh, a new casserole dish in the set, or there would be um, a new juice glass in the set or whatever. And you would just buy it at the regular grocery store. And uh, my regular grocery store had a display that had the Time Life books in it. And uh, I had to spend my allowance on them. I saved my money and, and I bought them. I feel like I only bought like four of them and I can't tell you exactly which ones they are because a few years ago, I went to eBay and I bought a complete set, the entire thing. I was like, you know what? It's time for me to own these books. I know these stories aren't true. I do not believe in supernatural phenomenon at all, but I absolutely love the stories. I love to imagine that this unexplainable, in big giant square quotes, unexplainable phenomenon uh, is something beyond our perception. Everything tends to have a scientific explanation, but that doesn't make the stories any less fun to read, right? It's fun to pretend that, for example, poltergeists are real. And that's what I chose for you today. I chose a story about poltergeists. This is just a, this is like a, 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 a rather large section in this book. Um, that is uh, called The World of Poltergeists. I did not read all of it because it is a lot of pages and I felt like it was kind of getting a little repetitive, but it's fun. So listen to these stories and just imagine that the uh, that the tales of poltergeists from as, as far back uh, as maybe the 19th century, and this book was published in the 20th century. So, you know, things that were contemporary to this book were 1988 when it 
it was published. Uh, these, uh, uh, I think I, I think I read you like three or four kind of stories of poltergeists and hauntings. Um, uh, so I hope that you will have fun with this today from the Time Life series, Mysteries of the Unknown, from the book Mind Over Matter. Uh, enjoy very much, and I'll see you next time. The World of Poltergeists. In 1851, the quiet village of Sideville, 80 miles northwest of Paris, was the site of a witch trial. Almost by definition, such events tend to be more than a trifle bizarre, but this one was even stranger than most, for the case was brought by the alleged witch, a shepherd named Felix Torrell, and the defendant was none other than the village priest, a Father Tinell. The chain of events leading to this improbable case began the previous year, when Father Tunnell paid a call on an ailing parishioner. The patient, the priest discovered, had been treated with the medicines of a local charlatan who claimed to be a practicing sorcerer. When the parishioner died soon afterward, Father Tunnell had the so-called sorcerer arrested and thrown in jail. From his cell, the sorcerer vowed to take revenge. The revenge, if such it was, took a strange and roundabout form. At the time, two young boys were living in Father Tinell's parsonage. One day at an auction in Sideville, the shepherd Torrell, who was a disciple of the jailed sorcerer, stopped the boys, placed his hands upon their heads, and murmured a mysterious incantation. In the months that followed, Sideville ceased to be a quiet village for the priest and his pupils. According to the trial records, no sooner had the boys returned to their room in the parsonage than a fearsome gust of wind rocked the building. That night, a loud and persistent rapping noise disturbed their sleep. No cause could be found. Over the next two months, a series of increasingly freakish events transformed the once restful parsonage into a scene of nightmarish madness. Tables skittered across the floor, candlesticks and fireplace tongs danced in the air, and chairs and carpets hovered over the heads of astonished visitors. By far the most unrelenting of the many reported disturbances was the loud rapping, which sounded as though someone were striking the wainscoting of the room with a hammer. In time, Father Tunnel and the Marquis de Merville, a nobleman who had come from Paris to investigate the well-publicized incidents, created a crude form of communication through these wrappings. The Marquis was able to deduce that the entity that was wreaking havoc at the parsonage had a paralyzing fear of nails, spikes, and other sharp points. Immediately, he and Father Tunnell began driving nails into the floor and walls of the room wherever the strange manifestations had occurred. It is said that the first of the nails instantly glowed red hot and that the floor cracked and smoked. When another nail was driven into a cupboard, <coughs> Father Tunnell's elder pupil reported a fleeting vision of a nail tearing a man's cheek. The following day, that vision appeared in the flesh. The shepherd Torrell was seen with an ugly gash on his cheek that looked as though it had been made by the sharp point of a nail. As far as Father Tinell was concerned, that proved the man's guilt. He accused the shepherd of witchcraft and knocked him to the ground with his walking stick. Unexpectedly, Torrell responded by suing the clergyman for libel. 
Thorol not only lost his suit, but he was compelled to pay court costs. Still, he had one victory. Father Tunnell reluctantly agreed to let his pupils leave the parsonage. Only then was peace restored. From Folklore to Freud Although the events in Cytoville were thought at the time to be witchcraft, in later years some students of the paranormal have suspected the presence of a poltergeist. The term poltergeist, from the German words poltern, meaning to make noise, and geist, meaning ghost or spirit, describes a curious kind of alleged psychic phenomenon characterized by strangely mischievous, almost teasing events that defy explanation. If there was a poltergeist in the parsonage, it behaved true to form. Typically, when a poltergeist is said to be at hand, there are mysterious rappings and bangings and gusts of cold air. Objects move about inexplicably, crockery tumbles to the floor, and furniture flies through the air. Sometimes doors and windows fling open by themselves. Items disappear, only to be found in the next room. Stones and rocks mysteriously bombard buildings, and, in a few rare cases, people are physically attacked. Often these events take place in the presence of a child or adolescent. Over the centuries, countless broken windows and shattered plates have been blamed on these restless spirits. Undoubtedly, most of the mishaps have had human causes. Indeed, many psychical researchers are reluctant to admit that the phenomenon exists at all. Skeptics point out that so-called paranormal wrappings and creakings could have far more mundane explanations, such as shrinking timbers or the effects of underground streams. Early in the 20th century, no less an authority than Frank Podmore of London's Society for Physical Research, sorry, Psychical Research, advanced a naughty little girl theory, because of course he did, holding that many disturbances attributed to the poltergeists owe less to the supernatural than to children's overheated imaginations and love for pranks. Still, a number of modern physical, sorry, still a number... <laughs> Still, a number of modern psychical investigators take a more serious view of poltergeists. Researchers such as Hans Bender of West Germany and William G. Roll of the United States not only believe in poltergeists, but reject the long-held notion that they are discarnate or non-corporeal beings. The poltergeist, in their view, has little or no independent existence. Rather, it is a person-centered phenomenon, triggered within the subconscious of a living human agent. In many cases, the presumed agent seems to be experiencing great personal unhappiness or frustration, be, uh, which may, in some unknown fashion, be expressed as a powerful psychokinetic force. Some theorists have even suggested that the onset of puberty, with all its attendant anxieties, may trigger a poltergeist. Although researchers still seek to understand the genesis of poltergeist activity, they have detected certain patterns over the years. Foremost of these is that the occurrences are never single, isolated incidents. Rather, the poltergeist tends to stretch out its visits over weeks and months, sometimes even a period of years. For this reason, many psychical researchers use the phrase recurrent spontaneous psychokinesis, or RSPK, to describe poltergeist phenomenon. An unquiet grave. 
What was uncanny about the poltergeist that reportedly haunted a family tomb on the Caribbean island of Barbados then was not that it stayed for years, but that it appeared to be location-centered rather than person-centered. Prominent landowners on Barbados in the early 19th century, the Chase family, first became aware of something peculiar in 1812 following the death of their daughter, Dorcas. Oh my gosh, her name is Dorcas. D-O-R-C-A-S. Probably pronounced differently, probably pronounced something nice and normal like Dorsa or Dorca, but Dorcas. Yep. Hello. I'm your narrator, Will, and I am 12 years old. The Chases had a plain stone burial vault in a small church graveyard not far from Bridgetown. Scarcely had Dorcas's body been interred there on July 6th, then a rumor sprang up. Oh, I'm laughing about someone who died. Scarcely had Dorcas's body been interred there on July 6th, then a rumor sprang up that the young woman had starved herself to death in despair over her cruel treatment at the hands of her father, Thomas Chase, a man much hated on the island. The rumor intensified a few weeks later when Thomas Chase himself died suddenly. This time, members of the funeral party found a bizarre scene when they opened the family vault. Dorcas's coffin had been tossed against the back wall of the tomb like so much driftwood. Two other coffins had been similarly flung about. The callous treatment of their dead naturally angered and distressed the grieving Chase family. Grave robberies were not unknown on Barbados, but nothing appeared to have been taken from the vault, and a vandal would have had to chip away the cement that sealed the heavy marble slab at the entrance, hurl the coffins across the chamber, and then carefully seal the entrance again. As unlikely as this seemed, no one came forward with a more plausible explanation. Three more burials followed within seven years. Each time the vault was opened, the coffins, including the massive 240-pound one of Thomas Chase, were found wildly jumbled together, although the sealed door of the vault appeared undisturbed. And by the second of the three burials, the matter had become a source of such speculation that the governor, Love Combert, Lord Combermer, got involved. Under Combermer's supervision, the team, a team of men searched the vault, but before resealing it, they sprinkled sand on the floor so they could detect the footprints of any intruder. A few months later, curiosity compelled Combermer and his men to return to the graveyard. The seal appeared as they had left it, and after hours of chipping away at the cement, they entered the chamber, only to find it more violently chaotic than before. Some of the coffins leaned drunkenly against the walls. Others were strewn carelessly atop one another, and one had flipped over completely. Yet, not a footprint marred the pristine smoothness of the sand on the floor. Combermere, admitting that the mystery was beyond him, ordered the coffins removed from the vault and buried in another location. Since then, the vault has reportedly been untroubled. There have been other accounts of moving coffins over the years, but in most cases the problem has been easily explained. Sometimes they were shaken up by an earth tremor, sometimes carried by floodwaters that then receded and set them down in a different place. Neither of these explanations applied to the Barbados case. The Chase family vault never showed any sign of flooding, and a tremor capable of upending a 240-pound coffin would not have gone unnoticed by the living. In the absence of any natural cause, speculation quickly turned to the supernatural. 
Many observers of the period, as well as others who subsequently reviewed the events, were struck by the fact that the disturbances began after the internment of young Dorcas Chase, the suspected suicide. Some students of the paranormal speculate that the violent movement within the vault was the result of her restless spirit, a poltergeist that hovered near her earthly remains. If that is the case, the story of the moving coffins of Barbados represents one of the rare instances in which a reported poltergeist did not attach itself to the living. It would also be one of the few cases in psychic research in which a poltergeist has plagued a place rather than an individual. The disturbances tend to focus on a single living person, and in the entire history of poltergeist phenomenon, probably the most famous such person was Eleonora Zugan. The Poisoned Candy In the best fairy tale tradition, the story of Eleonora begins with a little girl going to visit her grandmother. In February 1925, Eleonora, a 12-year-old peasant living in the northern Romanian village of Talpa, set out to see her grandmother, who lived in a village nearby. The girl found some money by the road and bought candy with her windfall, but when she told her grandmother of her lucky find, the old lady flew into a rage. The, old, the money had been left there by malicious spirits, she declared, and Eleonora, having eaten the candy, had absorbed the devil too. The devil, or whatever it was, reportedly made itself known the next day. In Eleonora's presence, small objects began to jump up and fly through the air. Stones showered down on the grandmother's cottage, shattering windows. When villagers learned of the strange happenings, Eleonora was sent home to Talpa. There, not three days later, the phenomena resumed with even greater violence. In despair, Eleonora's parents took her to a priest to be exorcised of evil spirits. But far from being put to rest, the poltergeist proceeded to put on its most impressive show yet. Bystanders, including the stunned priest, watched in amazement as a water-filled jug sailed through the air without spilling a drop and a trunk began to rock. One observer even received a blow across the face from a flying kitchen cutting board. Eyewitnesses agreed that Eleonora could not physically have been responsible for such events. Perhaps not, but as the poltergeist persisted, Eleonora was ostracized even by her parents. The girl found temporary refuge in a local monastery. When the violent activities uh, continued even there, she was moved to a lunatic asylum. By then, the case had been the subject of considerable newspaper coverage, and the publicity had attracted the attention of psychical investigators. Among them was a Viennese countess named Zoe Vasilko Serecki, who said she was convinced that Eleonora was the victim of a poltergeist. In January 1926, the countess removed the girl, by now dirty and frightened, from the asylum and brought her to live in Vienna. For the first time since she had eaten the tainted candy, Eleonora appeared happy, but the phenomena grew even more horrible. Within two months of moving in with the Countess, Eleonora seemed to be under physical attack by an unseen tormentor. Scratches and welts appeared on her face, neck, and arms. On one occasion, her hands and arms turned purple from as many as 25 apparent bites. 
In her diary, the Countess wrote that she had seen the painful marks emerge exactly as though Eleonora had been bitten by somebody, even as she held the girl's hands. Harry Price, a noted British researcher who had come to Vienna to observe Eleonora, was equally impressed by the vivid bite and scratch marks, and by such events as a seat cushion floating through the air. Some of the telekinetic phenomena witnessed by me were not the work of normal forces, he stated. And that September, Price invited Eleonora and the Countess to the National Laboratory of Psychical Research in London, then a leading force in the investigation of the spirit world. For two weeks, Eleonora was subjected to every manner of psychic test available. Although much of the phenomena, notably the movement and disappearance of various objects, was less impressive than it had been in Vienna, Price managed to record a graphic series of photographs of the bites and scratches that kept appearing on the girl's face and hands. While Price was convinced of their authenticity, others were dubious. The following year, when Eleonora and her patron were on a visit to Munich, a medical doctor accused the Countess of inflicting the wounds on the girl under the guise of tidying her hair or examining a scratch. The Countess angrily denied the charges, noting that even if she had accidentally scratched the girl, she could not have bitten her without being detected. Whatever the truth, the supposed poltergeist attacks stopped a few months later, when Eleonora began to menstruate for the first time. Then... After two years of fear and pain, Eleonora resumed a normal life in Romania. Eleonora Zagun's case proved to be a milestone in the study of poltergeists, ushering in a new era of research and prompting a reappraisal of a number of cases with a greater emphasis on the human focus. Perhaps the most significant new theory advanced during this period was that of the British parapsychologist Hareward Carrington, who was one of the first to discern a connection between human biology and reports of poltergeist activity. Writing in 1930, Carrington theorized that the onset of puberty in adolescence, together with additional unknown factors, might bring on poltergeist phenomena. An energy seems to be radiated from the body, the researcher speculated. It would almost seem as if these energies insisted of taking the... It would almost seem as if these energies, instead of taking the normal course, find this curious means of externalization. Alan R.G. Owen, a British geneticist and mathematician with an abiding interest in the paranormal, later expanded on Carrington's thesis. While pointing out that a number of poltergeist cases apparently center exclusively on adults, Owen acknowledged that many poltergeist agents have ranged in age from 10 to 20 years old. It is by no means clear, he wrote in 1970, that the poltergeist disturbances coincided all precisely with pubertal pubertal changes. However, there may be something to be said for a modified form of Carrington's theory, in which we think not of psychological energy, but of emotional tension, which can occur both before and after puberty. Luckily, not every adolescent going through puberty has a poltergeist, but the theory that emotional tension can act as a kind of trigger for poltergeist activity is borne out again and again in the records of psychical investigators. Certainly, emotions ran high on the case of Corolla and Otto Schrey and their two daughters. Diddy did it. The Schrey's troubles had their roots in the upheaval of World War II. Having fled Allied bombardment in western Germany, the Schrey's settled down in a small apartment in the Bavarian village of Lauder. 
During their relocation, they became foster parents to a 13-year-old girl named Irma, who had lost her real parents a few months earlier. Later, the couple took in yet another orphan, a three-year-old named Edith. The Shreys eventually adopted Edith, a beautiful, well-mannered little girl, but not Irma, who was frequently truculent and withdrawn. In June of 1946, Edith, whose nickname was Diddy, underwent an alarming personality change. The once placid girl became unruly and even spiteful, and her constant tantrums terrorized the family. When confronted about her behavior, the child would only say, Diddy did it because I am not allowed. Though a rebellious child is hardly the stuff of the supernatural, Edith's black moods reportedly marked the beginning of months of horror. Soon the child sank regularly into trance-like states. During these periods, according to Carola Schrey, the household became a virtual sewer. Piles of human excrement and pools of urine materialized in every corner of the small apartment, under the furniture, on the kitchen floor, even in the beds. At first, Carola Schrey assumed that one of her daughters was responsible and went so far as to withhold liquids from the girls, but the foul messes persisted. Things continued to deteriorate for the Shreys. Irma began to fall into the same trance-like lethargy that plagued little Edith. Ink pens, iron files, and razor blades broke into fragments. Religious pictures were spattered with tomatoes. Liverwurst flew out of the frying pan and into the cleaning supplies. Indecipherable messages were typed on Corolla Shrey's portable typewriter, although the machine was securely locked in its carrying place. The disorder turned to violence one day as Irma was carrying a box of firewood into the house. As the girl entered the kitchen, in full view of her foster parents, one of her long braids fell to the ground as if lopped off by, as if lopped off by an invisible blade. Later, the rest of her hair would be viciously hacked away, leaving her scalp bloody and raw. One cut penetrated the skull. At this point, there appeared on the scene Hans Bender, the parapsychologist who was founder and director of Freiburg University's Institute for Border Areas of Psychology and Mental Hygiene. In previous investigations, Bender had found that his presence had a dampening effect on poltergeist activity, as though the noisy spirits shrank from scrutiny by outsiders. But whatever entity was troubling the Shreys displayed no such reticence, according to Bender. He was interviewing the Shrey couple during one of his first visits to their apartment when the presumed poltergeist announced itself in no uncertain terms. Moments after Irma came into the room, closing the door behind her, the adults heard loud noises coming from the hallway. Throwing open the door, they found that a heavy rug stored there had been twisted so wildly that it took all three of them several minutes to straighten it out. Bender came away convinced that the Shreys were the victims of a genuine poltergeist, and he thought he knew the source. Although the Shrey girls had been caught up in the disturbances, Irma, the adolescent, seemed the likelier focus. That she, unlike Edith, had not been officially adopted by the Shreys might have been a source of resentment or emotional tension, as Alan Owen would call it. And that, in turn, reasoned Bender, may have triggered the poltergeist's unwelcome visit. Like all such hauntings, the disturbances at the Shreys' home diminished over time and eventually ceased altogether. But even as the Shreys' lives returned to normal, a similar nightmare reportedly began for the Plock family 
only a few miles away in the mountain village of Wachendorf. The Flying Wooden Shoe On March 16, 1947, Maria and Franz Plock were playing cards in their living room with their 14-year-old adopted daughter Mitzi. As the game went on, all the players found that they were holding fewer and fewer cards. Some of the missing cards reappeared under the table. The Plocks naturally assumed that someone had dropped them there and dismissed the incident. But when they dealt a new hand, the cards vanished once again. And this time, they did not resurface. By the end of the evening, there were just 19 cards remaining from the 52-card deck. Forced to abandon their game, the Plocks shrugged and went to bed only to confront a greater mystery. Because the Plock's home was small, Mitzi slept in the same room with her parents. That night, however, no one slept. No sooner had the lights been turned off than the Plock's found themselves pelted by a hailstorm of hammers, knives, coal, water, stones, and dirt. Shielding his face with his hands, Franz Plock leaped out of bed to turn on the light, but the bulbs had somehow been loosened in their sockets. When the family attempted to flee from the bedroom, they discovered the door was locked. Later, after neighbors had broken down the door and released the terrified family, the missing key was spotted, hanging from a clock in another room. Unfortunately for the Plocks, the night of the flying objects was only a prelude to days of continuing aerial mischief. Laundry left hanging in the attic would float and cavort about the house. Dishes would come sailing out of a cupboard and crash against the opposite wall, falling unbroken to the floor. A bowl of soup skated along the table and emptied its contents into Franz Plock's lap. Rolls that Mitzi had brought home flew about the kitchen like so many swallows. Maria Plock wrote in her diary while the butter moved incautiously toward the oven and melted. The Plocks fought back, but to little avail. When Maria gathered up all the loose objects in the house and put them in a box and locked the box in a closet, the items simply flew out again, apparently penetrating both box and locked door. The next day, the same sequence occurred. It was no use, Maria wrote. I grabbed everything, put it into the box, and sat on it, but it all came out again. Once again, Hans Bender arrived on the scene this time bringing along a photographer, Leif Gages, in hope of capturing the strange manifestations on film. Failing that, Bender reasoned, it might be useful to recreate some of the events to provide a visual record of the case. The Plock family's mysterious visitor avoided portraiture, as it turned out, but it proved to be far from shy. In fact, one of the more baffling and violent episodes took place in the presence of the intruding investigator. As Franz Plock worked Absorbedly on a wood carving, a heavy wooden shoe flew across the room and struck him in the head with a resounding smack. Vendor's, sorry, Bender's photographer caught the somewhat rueful expression on the victim's face. Bender's photographer caught the somewhat rueful expression on the victim's face seconds after the blow. When Plock recovered, he pointed out that the shoe had been kept in a glassed-in cabinet that was still intact. The bizarre incident, according to the researcher, was a clear case of telekinesis and a case of matter penetrating matter. Just as Bender had zeroed in on the sullen Irma Schrey, this time his attention was drawn to teenaged Mitzi Plock. 
when Bender learned that the poltergeist activity had ceased while Mitzi made a brief trip away from home. His suspicions were confirmed. Once again, a girl in the early stages of puberty appeared to be the focus of a poltergeist visitation. Although the sources of emotional tension were not quite as obvious in the Plock family, the parallels to the Shrey case seemed to be clear. Happily, the Plock's apparent haunting, like the Shrey's, soon stopped as abruptly as it had begun. There's considerably more to this chapter, but we've been doing this for almost 30 minutes, and I'm going to go ahead and end this now. This is from uh, the Time Life series, Mysteries of the Universe. The volume is titled Mind Over Matter. I cannot tell you who the author is because the author does not appear to be credited in the book. Thank you for listening. <laughs>